Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. This is the scandal that is rocking Wall Street and beyond. This is the admissions bribery case that has wrapped up numerous U.S. universities, states, uh, as well as Wall Street luminaries. Joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios is Janet Lauren, Bloomberg Endowments and Education Reporter. Uh, So, Janet, let's just start with where are we here? Do we have a sense of how quickly these cases are are proceeding? I guess it's sort of a a class prosecution uh, with all of the prosecutors from a variety of different states going after uh, a slew of people. How long will it take and how many people are expected to go to jail with this? So the next step is a hearing uh, later at the end of March 29th in Boston. Um, There were several people in court yesterday, including the man behind this scheme, uh, Mr. Singer from California. Can you describe the scheme? Okay, the scheme um, started with uh, testing. So you want to get your kid into a top school, but your kid doesn't have the right tests. So uh, they would hire uh, people either to take the test. They had proctors in a couple of different site locations in California and Texas who could um, change the answers. And in some cases, the kids did not know that their parents had hired the service to change their answers to inflate their score. Um, So that was one aspect to get higher test scores. And then the more interesting aspect was hiring um, coaches at various schools to um, say they needed these kids as their athletic recruits and then to bribe the coaches. And uh, and these kids got in because they said they were uh, star athletes on the water polo team or the tennis team or the soccer team. Is, is there a school uh, that is sort of most prevalent? Definitely. USC. Um, there was somebody in the... Athletic- University of Southern California. Yes, University of Southern Cal- California. Um, the I was reading through the indictment yesterday, and that seemed to be the school that had the most um, connections of, of getting kids in fraudulently by bribing people um, within the within the school. So from a, from a money perspective, I'm wondering, uh, this is sort of a pay-to-play scheme, right? I mean, Absolutely. The money, right, so the money would go often to the schools themselves. Well, not to the schools themselves. They went to um, Mr. Singer's um, foundation. Um, and believe it or not, these donors, uh, these, these people who were paying the bribes, even got a tax donation for giving money to his foundation. And he paid the bribes from that. So the, the bribes to to the coaches, to the proctors, to all the people in his network of fraud. So did any of it go to the actual endowments, to, no. the, to the base of, of, of money? Not that we know of. No, they were being, they be, these people were being paid off, you know, again, the personally. coaches. Personally, yes. yes. They were being personally paid off. Uh, of course, one reason why this is getting so much attention is because there just has been this fear uh, that if you're wealthy and connected, you can get whatever you want and perpetuate uh, the success that you've had with your kids. Uh, and this sort of confirms that, right? The other is that there are a number of quite big names. Yes. Uh, Doug Hodges of PIMCO, uh, Gordon Kaplan of Wilkie Farr, uh, William McLaughlin. This this to me blew me away of TPG Capital. He was the head of a unit that invested in socially 
conscious companies. Yes. I mean, the irony is head spinning, right? That, that he was caught up in cheating for his son to get into college. Well, but I think it shows the extent and the desperation that these these types of parents, nothing but the best. And they'll do, they're willing to break the law to do this. And that is, uh, you know, this, that's another step beyond, you know, helping your kid get a job and grease the wheels in different ways. You know, they, they were bribing people. And they, and if you read in the transcripts, the wiretaps, they knew exactly what they were doing. Do you get the sense that this is uh, sort of understood to be what people have to do to get into the school of their choice? I mean, to me, it was mind boggling. Uh, I, I had never heard of this before, but are there certain circles where it's just sort of, yeah, I guess this is 2019. You bribe your person to get your kid into college. I, I, I think um, at this extreme level, it's not pervasive by any means. Um, in the indictment, there was described, you get in the front door, you really have the academic chops. You know, you really are the best of star debate or the best of something that really elevates you to this level. And there's the bet traditional backdoor, which is giving millions of dollars. Maybe you went to that school um, to try to make donations, you know, buy a building. And sometimes at some places that works very effectively. Well, this guy created what he called a side door, meaning he knew that there was some um, entry point that was a little squishy, namely college athletics. The guy who founded this company. Yes, Mr. Singer. Yes. And, you know, if you are recruiting for a basketball team that is well known and, you know, you're, you, you can only recruit real kids who are going to play on these teams. They were um, pretending to recruit kids to play on lesser sports, water polo, um, tennis, you know, they don't get as much attention and scrutiny. So perhaps it was a little bit easier to figure out how to work the system. And you look at the indictment and they, they used Photoshop to take kids uh, faces, these kids faces and putting them on the bodies of people who are playing sports. I mean, it's, it's sophisticated yet. It's very crude in a way. Yeah. And just so, so blatant. Yeah. So blatant. I just have to wonder real quick, Janet, 20 seconds. Do you think that any of these big colleges will lose money as a result of this? I don't. So you think that it's not going to really affect anything in the long term? Um, I think you saw with worse scandals of sexual abuse, they, uh, they continue to raise money. Janet Lauren, thank you so much for being here. Uh, this story is is really uh, one that will be rocking. Certainly uh, the world of parents who have kids who are going to go to college and are wondering, what are we competing with at this point? Janet Lauren, uh, Bloomberg Endowments reporter, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studios. Brexit, all uh, very much on the docket here. Theresa May did lose that crucial vote of support for her latest plan to exit the European Union. This is leading to some hope, actually, ironically, uh, that perhaps this will lead to a second referendum or a delay to the Brexit process. And that is why perhaps the pound is strengthening versus the dollar today. Uh, the question is, is this really realistic? And joining us here is Ben Emmons. He is managing director uh, focusing on global macro strategy at Medley Global Advisors. He's also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Ben, thank you so much for being here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Do you think that this optimism is misplaced? 
Actually, it is not, Lisa, because recently what is going on here, and I think this is very confusing for a lot of people too. Yes, Brexit what, is confusing. Very confusing. You know, you go through these motions, and, and I think in the UK specific process, the voting currently on amendments to try to steer this withdrawal agreement to ultimately a version that both sides can agree on, EU and the UK. Now, the EU has said, no, 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 this is it. But there's much more wiggle room here. And I think the point, that's one reason why the pound is bidding up right that's optimism that ultimately we do end up with an agreement that both the uk and the eu can live with in addition i think this is also about the fact that you have to look more long term here we're going to likely get an extension of article 50 that's being voted on tomorrow and that's the eu has already said if you request it to us then we'll give it to you that's been out there so the uk likely will go that direction as opposed to the second referendum and the reason is, is that in the UK, they don't really want to go to a second referendum. Okay, so let's put this into uh, market terms, right? I mean, if there is going to be an extension, Goldman Sachs says the pound will likely rally to a three-year high. Mm-hmm. How long does the extension have to be, in your opinion, to make that happen? And do you agree with Goldman Sachs? I, I do agree with Goldman Sachs on that point. The extension could be three months, it could be longer even. But I actually really think that what we're really facing here is that we're going to have a transition period of at least a few years, which is technically that withdrawal agreement, right? But that's un- until 2020 or 2022, I believe. Then in that time frame, it gives them a lot of time to completely work out what they ultimately will be as a relationship to the EU. That's what they call it. It's a relationship. And that's the trading relationship. And that's all about concepts like Norway plus or EAA plus that idea of like you, you function like the similar way that you did before but in a in a not in the EU context of being part of the EU 27 so yes the pound has upside the pound is actually being very depressed n- simply because there's uncertainty about how the agreement exactly will work out as it slowly has been worked out I think that Goldman Sachs has a point there's there's room to rise here making a round trip basically back to the numbers from uh, last year in March when the Brexit uncertainty really started to uh, increase, right? When we were at 141 on the pound. But really interesting. So it, Theresa May, is she out as prime minister? I don't think so. I don't think that she will really face any... How many lives does this person have? The yeah. political lives. Theresa May is really... I think she's actually my hero because no matter how much people beat up on her, she is resilient. She is very resilient. She's also the only person that's willing to do the job. That's been the real <laughs> issue there. <laughs> and that's, Fair enough, right? actually. Yeah. So she, she, uh, she's definitely, she will stay in, in, in the saddle. Now, obviously, if, if, if the voting goes on and it leads to a real breakup of her, of her government coalition or a government, then, then yes, you face a new election. But that's not really happening here. So I think that she's be, she'll stay on as prime minister. I, our view is that will ultimately lead to a long-term agreement that she will, will, will be able to, to have you know, engineered for the All UK. Right. All right. So let's say Brexit is delayed and there is some sense that we are going to come to a resolution. Not easy, not clean, uh, but at least a resolution here and one that might not be as painful as a, a full no-deal Brexit. Do you get the sense that people will have to uh, raise their growth expectations for the euro region, which have been completely beaten up over the past few years? Uh, and do you think that that will lead to yields rising? from the uh, near lowest ever <laughs> rates that we're seeing right now. Yeah, no, no, that is a fair point, actually, because what's driving the slowdown in Europe, one, it is driven by China and, and the demand for Chinese products and the trade war that had an impact there. That's been one fact. But the other fact is that, yes, the trade with the UK is substantial. 
the Netherlands, as where I'm from, for example, is very sensitive to that trade. Germany, therefore, too. So I do think that if the resolution happens and the activity picks up further, that, yes, it, there's an opportunity for Europe to rebound. And it has a lot more scope to rebound than, say, the U.S. going through this motion of slowdown from the fiscal But stimulus. But this is a big deal. You think that you, the, the Eurozone, the re European region, has more potential to uh, rebound and, and grow than the U.S.? Yeah, I do. Over I what period? Over this period, let's say, for the next coming year or so, when this whole trade agreement with the U.K. is completely fleshed out, there's that scope to actually see that rebound. And I think that, therefore, not only the pound, but also the euro has opportunity to rise, to appreciate. But that probably means the bonds are going to underperform. In the yeah, you would think at some point, like the bond yields are you know, near zero. That is a reflection, one of really low inflation. And to your point earlier, like, why do you have negative yields and it's increasing? That's inflation expectations. That's definitely part of that story. But the growth story that would pick up again, yes, would normalize bond yields, would normalize even Italian and French bond yields. I'm not so much in the camp of that the Eurozone is facing a real recession risk for that matter. So it's it's more maybe Italy itself as a contraction phase currently, but not broadly. Ben Emmons, thank you so much for being with me today. This yeah. is really interesting. Uh, Europe with more potential to uh, grow than the U.S. Ben Emmons is Managing Director of Global Macro Strategy at Medley Global Advisor and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. is a paradox in markets today. You have U.S. equities that are rallying, that are continuing to push forward uh, despite concerns about high valuations. And yet you also have bonds that are pushing forward. And this is the mind-boggling statistic to me. Uh, there is currently $9.2 trillion of negative yielding debt outs there. Uh, that is the highest level uh, since late 2017. Usually the higher this level goes, the more bearish uh, you would think you ought to be on the global economy. Joining us now to try to put this together and make sense of it is David Katz, President and Chief Investment Officer of Matrix, Matrix Asset Advisors. David, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start there. Do you think that there is sort of a contradiction baked into markets given how low bond yields are today, uh, also uh, while you have U.S. equities continuing to rally? Well, we think the fact that the bond yields are so exceptionally low makes stocks that much more attractive, which means it really does make sense that stocks have been rallying. Uh, at some point, the economy uh, is going to get it right in terms of, or the market's going to get it right that the economy is actually doing better than the bond market thinks. And then we think that rates are going to start to drift higher. But in the meantime, it does mean that stocks are an attractive place to be for 2019. So we've certainly had a, a fantastic start to the year for equity investors with the S&P up over 11% uh, year-to-date, David. So is, are we still chasing it here? Are we waiting for pullbacks, or do we just kind of trade around our favorite names here? What are you recommending? So we went into the year uh, very upbeat about the market, thought it would be a well above average year. The fact that you've gotten 11% in 10 weeks means that at some point it's going to slow down. So if you've been sitting on the sidelines and you're finally looking at the market and saying, boy, it's doing great, maybe I should start to jump in right here, that we would advise against. Um, we think that if you have money in the market, stay with the market. Uh, we would use a week like last week where the market was down 2 to 3 to 4% as a place to be adding to stocks, but wouldn't be chasing the big up days like you had uh, earlier in the week and then today. 
All right, but David, I want to go back to the whole bond stock disconnect, or maybe it's a, an absolute direct connection. Uh, here's what I don't understand. If bonds and stocks can rally in tandem, then do bonds still provide sort of the haven and, and the buffer uh, kind of bet or the buffer kind of uh, proposition versus stocks? In other words, there usually is an inverse relationship. So the 60-40 kind of breakdown of your portfolio makes sense. The bond uh, offering sort of buffer against sell-offs in stocks. Does that not count anymore? Do bonds just always rally no matter what? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, so when we look at the bond market right now, we think yields are at the lower end of their range. We think on the 10-year, you probably get up to about 3% or more before year end, which means if you're a bond investor, uh, look to bonds to give you a little bit of income, some stability if the market sells off meaningfully, but do not look for bonds to be a meaningful place to make money. Uh, the flip side is stocks will do better over time. Valuations are at about 16 and a half times earnings, which is pretty reasonable in terms of the overall market in a good economy with low interest rates. So we think that will make money. Uh, if we're wrong, if there were problems uh, with the China trade deal, we think the stock market would sell off and bonds would rally on that because that would hurt the global economy. The other wild card that's out there is one of the reasons our rates are so low is because uh, we live in a global economy and European rates are low and, in fact, going to be going lower. So, David, you mentioned China. To what extent, we get this question a lot, to what extent do you think a potential China trade deal, uh, successful China trade deal is already priced into the equity markets? We think that the equity markets are not pricing in a failure anymore. In the fourth quarter, they were pricing in a failure. Uh, so we think we're right now in the, in the middle ground. If there was not a deal, if we doubled the tariffs again, we think the market would sell off. If there is a deal, we don't think it necessarily means the market's going to rally 5 or 10% in the following weeks. But what we do think it does is it really frees up the global economy to do better. And if the global economy is doing better, then we think stocks can do better. So we think a deal is absolutely uh, critical for the U.S. economy and for the U.S. stock markets. Uh, we think that the Trump administration, or at least President Trump, finally understands that when he talks about a deal happening, the market goes up. When he talks about being Mr. Tariff, the market goes down. If he understands that, and if they've made as much progress as the body language of the last few weeks suggests, there would be a deal, and that would free up our market to do better as the year progresses. If there's not a deal, we're a lot more cautious. So, David, I want to go back to what you were talking about with respect to uh, you would be adding at times like last week when there was about a three or four percent pullback at one point. Uh, you focus on specific stocks that you like, right? You're not talking about broad index uh, type of strategy, correct? That's absolutely correct. And even with the market up at these higher levels right now, we do think there are a lot of stocks that are selling at very attractive valuations. You know, we're able to buy companies that have good long-term growth prospects, paying good yields, that are selling at 9, 10, 11 times earnings. And generally, when you're able to do that, you do pretty well. Yeah. So what are you talking about in particular? So companies that we like uh, in the uh, biotech area, Gilead Science has been a miserable performer over the last year. It sells under 10 times earnings, has a 3.9% yield. They brought in a new CEO who's very well regarded. Uh, we think the surprises there are on the upside. Uh, PNC Financial Services is uh, a bank that is very strong bank, great financial or great capital ratios, but has really lagged the group over the last year. Uh, it sells at about 11 times earnings and pays a 3% yield. Uh, Royal Dutch Oil Company pays a 6% yield. Uh, Zimmer Biomet, which makes 
uh, medical devices, knee and hip replacements, uh, sells at about uh, 14 or 15 times earnings. There's been a lot of insider buying of late. So all of those companies we think are pretty low risk with very good reward potentials. How about the, uh, uh, real quick, about 30 seconds, David, the FANG stocks. They have been such a leader both on the upside last year and the downside in December. Uh, are you guys playing in that space at all? So we do think there are a few that are, are actually pretty attractive here. So we've been buying Facebook, uh, and although we bought it lower, we do think the stock goes up from here. Google, again, we, we bought lower, but we still do like that stock here. Netflix, we're very wary of. Uh, we think that it is richly priced. You're starting to see the CBS and the Comcast and the Disneys of the world taking back a lot of content, uh, developing their own OTT uh, product. So we think Netflix, uh, probably not as strong as it's been. Uh, Amazon is a great company, but buy the product and, and probably uh, we'd shy away from the stock. We think they're better places to make money. David Katz, thank you so much. David Katz is a chief investment officer for Matrix uh, Asset Advisors is joining us uh, on the phone. We appreciate that. Well, listeners to the show know that Lisa and I like to talk technology. We usually talk about some of the fun stocks like Facebook and Amazon and Google. Uh, today, we want to talk about an interesting story. Uh, we want to really talk about inside uh, quantum technology. What is quantum technology and what does it mean uh, for the marketplace? Uh, we are fortunate to have Lawrence Gassman join us. Lawrence is a founder and president of Inside Quantum Technology based in Lynchburg, uh, Lynchburg Virginia. Lawrence, uh, thank you so much for joining us. First, um, what is quantum technology and what, what does it do that makes it so important? We're in Charlottesville, Virginia, by the way, but uh, quantum technology... Uh, home okay, Wahoos um, from the UVA, okay, um, thank you. ...is a technology that was derived from something called quantum information theory, which was a um, uh, theoretical um, development in the 1990s and with the... Uh, growth in, in power of chips. It's actually become reality. And it's really um, three things. One is quantum computers, which outpace any computer that's ever been built and is able to solve certain problems that classical computers can't do. Um, quantum encryption, which is the most, which has different variants, but is the most secure uh, encryption ever um, developed and, and you know, therefore of interest to the military, actually the militaries all over the world. And that's the two main things. The third thing is quantum sensors, which are sensors that uh, are more, potentially more sensitive than anything that yeah. uh, has been built before. So together, um, they have a common core and history, um, but they're producing new markets, just beginning to get going in some ways. So uh, one reason why, uh, Lawrence, uh, we're talking about this now is because uh, we're almost upon the Inside Quantum Technology Conference uh, that's going to be held in Boston starting March 19th. And I'm just wondering, do you have a sense of attendance for this conference? And the reason why I think this is really important is because when I hear uh, quantum computing, my brain kind of starts to go fuzzy. And I think, you know, <laughs> please, I hope I can uh, understand this and, and, and understand the practical applications. But in reality, this is going to be the sea change that determines which of the IBM, Microsoft's, Intel, Avaya's are going to be the winners in the upcoming technology cycle? Well, um, the conference will be next week, and we have a mix between some of the big com 
big companies. We have IBM, Microsoft, D-Wave, which is a specialist company, but a rather substantial one. Um, and uh, one thing you'll see is that there's a, a huge mix and an impressive mix between the companies that are everyday names. Um, on the encryption side, for instance, you have just about every major telephone company involved. Uh, but there is also uh, a stunning number of um, uh, startups being funded by VCs um, that are uh, um, are really beginning to take off. If you're going to ask me how many, I don't know, but I well, seem to discover one new one every morning. We're, again, we're going to have a lot of the more prominent uh, of the firms in that space. Can you give us... Um, I, I think there's a sense that this is a really new area and a lot of money will be made over the next few years and even more in the next 10 years. Um, and a lot of uh, talented people are responding to that. So, Lawrence, give us if you can, some practical applications that our listeners might, you know, get a sense of how quantum technologies, quantum computing uh, will impact um, their, their daily lives. So, it, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, there isn't going to be a desktop quantum computer in the foreseeable future, but because people have said things like that about computers for a long time and they've turned out to be wrong. But what it really does is, um, well, two of the areas that are, are really beginning to take off now are um, problems uh, that could not be solved with classical computers in building new materials or building new drugs. Uh, quantum computers seem to be able to tackle that kind of problem. Or transportation and planning, um, so you get people like Volkswagen and um, and and Airbus and, and some other firms that are beginning to use quantum computing to solve those kind of problems. Um, on the encryption side, quantum computing actually raises an issue because if we could ever build a quantum computer big enough, and we're not sure when that will happen, but not too distant future, we'll be able to break all the common um, uh, encryption schemes, including the ones that you know every, use every day on your um, on your computer, so that opens a new opportunity for new kinds of encryption schemes, including some that actually involve quantum technology itself. Um, so that's a problem, not a solution, but, but it's one that quantum computers create. But there, it's a lot of optimization problems, and, and that's really where it's focused at the moment. Lawrence, just real quickly here, uh, when we talk about quantum computing, it just means uh, the amount of speed and the amount of data that can be involved. Is that basically the uh, underlying uh, unifying feature That's here? That's the underlying um, thing conceptually. Um, it involves, some, so I mean, everybody knows what a bit, a bit is, a one or a zero. In quantum computing and quantum technology, you have things called qubits, which are actually, their physical manifestation is actually a quantum uh, state, uh, something that involves uh, um, I think we have time for me to go into quantum uh, theory, but um, we don't we have ten seconds but the uh, important thing is when you 've got a bit and you never add another bit, you double the capacity with um, quantum computing, it goes up uh, geometrically, so uh, if you had a five hundred bit computer that 's not that large, but right. a five hundred qubit computer would be able to do amazing things. Lawrence Gassman, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, founder and president of Inside Quantum Technology based in Charlottesville.
Well, the cannabis business is certainly getting a lot of love recently. First, we had Martha Stewart throwing her hat in the ring, and now we have billionaire investor Nelson Peltz uh, joining Aurora Cannabis as a strategic advisor and is receiving stock options that could make him the pot firm's second largest shareholder. To kind of dig into all things cannabis, we have Christine Oram. She is a Bloomberg columnist on Canadian cannabis. Uh, she is from Bloomberg Opinion. She joins us from the Toronto Bureau. Uh, Christine, thanks for joining us. How important is it that a significant investor with name recognition uh, puts some capital behind this business? Thanks for having me. Yeah, it, well, as you say, he's certainly not the first big name to join a cannabis company. Um, Martha Stewart being another very prominent example. Um, Gene Simmons is also working with a cannabis company. There are lots of Although examples. Although that's not but, exactly surprising, but go on. Well, <laughs> that's true. Uh, but Nelson Peltz is arguably the biggest name investor to work with a cannabis company. So it's quite significant for Aurora. You can see that in the way the share price is reacting today. Uh, it's currently up about 11% in Toronto trading. Um, and, and Peltz is basically coming on board to help advise Aurora on strategic partnerships. Now, Aurora is one of the biggest companies in this space, but has not yet been able to secure a strategic partnership along the lines of Canopy's uh, deal with Constellation Brands or Kronos's deal with Altria Group. Um, and so they, they've been uh, hunting for that. They're looking for partners across a wide range of verticals in the industry. And the hope here is that Peltz, with all his wide-ranging contacts, particularly in the consumer product, space can help them form those partnerships. Christine, that's exactly where I wanted to go, this concept that Nelson Peltz's relationships uh, have included the likes of Wendy's, uh, as well as Procter & Gamble, Pepsi, Mondelez, uh, Family Dollar Stores. These are more sort of uh, consumer-facing companies that are well-known in households across uh, North America. One question that I have is the marijuana companies to date that have been most successful have really rooted their business in medical marijuana. I'm just wondering, uh, how does this sort of position Aurora Cannabis in a consumer way, potentially? Yeah, that's a great question because Aurora has made it very clear that it is first and foremost a medical cannabis company, that that uh, both in Canada and internationally is its primary focus, not the recreational market. But that said, I talked to their chairman, Michael Singer, this morning, and he said what they're looking for is multiple partners, not just in the pharmaceutical space, but also in packaged goods, beverages, cosmetics, wellness. And so this indicates that, well, you know, medical still remains their primary focus. They are looking increasingly at that recreational and consumer side of things. And the hope is that Peltz, with all of his connections, as you mentioned, he's chairman at Wendy's, he's on the board at Procter & Gamble, uh, might be able to help form those partnerships. And Aurora's chairman, Michael Singer, said it's not just about Peltz's Rolodex, although that's very much uh, part of the appeal, of course, but it's also, you know, his advice, his experience, um, and, and the fact that he's, they're going to need some help as they're, they're going to be looking to form uh, all of these different partnerships. Um, also, I should note that unlike Canopy and Kronos, which have created one big uh, deal, one big partnership, Aurora doesn't want to do that. They want to maintain control of the company and have several different smaller partnerships across uh, a variety of verticals. Christine, give us a sense of the Canadian cannabis market itself. How big is it and how fast is it growing? Uh, great question. Yeah, the Canadian cannabis market is still relatively small. Um, we legalized in October, and so it's only been a few months. And part of the reason the market has remained small to date is because there have actually been uh, some pretty severe supply shortages, and so uh, sales haven't been as high as many companies have hoped. And that's why many companies, Aurora included, are looking to expand internationally. Um, that you know, Canada is a great starting point. It's been a way for them to find their feet, but it's really going to be uh, 
an international presence, particularly in the international medical market, which is much bigger than the international recreational market, that's going to make these companies uh, global players. So are they, is, is Aurora still primarily Canada right now? Uh, it, it is. Uh, it would get the majority of its revenue from Canada, but it has operations in many different countries. In fact, they just shipped their first um, cannabis oil to German pharmacies earlier this week, um, and they have uh, presence in Australia, several other European countries, um, and they're working uh, on Latin American partnerships as well. So they are uh, one of the more global companies in this space to date, although many of those uh, international initiatives are still pretty early stage. Just real quick here, Christine, I'm wondering if we can get a sense that these big names, these big name investors, we're not talking about uh, uh, Gene Simmons, who, of course, was the lead singer of Kiss. And uh, perhaps <laughs> might. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. I, I do have some pop culture, no, culture knowledge. Uh, Christine, is there a sense that recreational use of marijuana will uh, gain greater legalization? Is that sort of the feeling here? And acceptance? Yeah, that is the feeling. Although, you know, this is it's interesting seeing pelts come in because for the most part, large American investors have been pretty reluctant to touch this space. And that's because, you know, as you know, there are many states that have legalized recreational marijuana, but it's still illegal at the federal level. And so that's made things tricky for investors, for banks, for stock exchanges to really get closely involved. Um, that is starting to change, though. We've seen uh, several bills put forward, both at the state and federal level in the U.S. Yeah. and in other countries as well, um, that could push legalization pretty quickly. And so we could see things change uh, quite quite fast over the next two or three years, I'd say. Christine Oram, thank you so much for being with us. Bloomberg uh, reporter covering Canadian cannabis, uh, covering coming to us from Toronto. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.